Section eight of Through Broadland in a Braden Punt by John Nolittle, a pseudonym of the writer and naturalist Arthur Henry Patterson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapters fifteen and sixteen. Chapter fifteen In an Eelman's Hut. I went a fishing but caught not one fish that I durst eat of, till I was weary of my sport. When, just going to leave off, I caught a young dolphin. I had made me a long line of rope-yarn, but I had no hooks. Yet I frequently caught fish enough, as much as I cared to eat, all of which I dried in the sun, and ate them dry from robinson crusoe let me see i'm now in the hut with vincent again vincent's keen glistening eyes and my twinkling mischievous ones had met in mutual appreciation we too are brother naturalists and broadmen we were talking shop in less than no time on my right sat another dark-haired keeper, with a euphonious name. Opposite to me sat Olaf H., a courtly, educated Swedish gentleman, who is in love with Broadland. He, in a letter just received, tells me that, in imagination it took the shape of a pancake, with a patch of grass here and there. Never did I dream of the beauty of it. The water, reeds, birds, sun and wind, and the sturdy folk I met, not the pale, sallow-faced Londoner, but healthy men of open and frank countenance. More than ever did I feel the strong truth in men sana incorpore sano. Their hearts were in their handshake, large and open more like that of the old norsemen who were my forefathers a grand testimony from a friendly foreigner to the men of broadland he no doubt took a little of his colour from my hearty friend robert but these broadmen are mostly alike it's in the breed Vincent brought forth a kerchief and displayed its contents. "'You're to share my tea,' said he. So L.G. was to have a holiday. I forget what we had to nibble. Bread, I know, was the basis of it, but the sort of sandwichy plaster inside it was delectable. The hut oil stove soon sent steam from the kettle, and we had a brewing. We chattered four-corneredly, but two of us had the longest innings. We talked of birds, of fish, of eels, of men, of providence. I told Vincent how the problem of eel reproduction had been solved, that they came from over-deposited by migrant eels, from these very broads, if they escaped his nets, down in the vast oozy sea-fields near the Scilly Isles. 
of how short-sighted we had been to let the huns before the war glean up myriads of young elvers coming up our western rivers and transport them to german rivers to grow into food to help in a coming war of how i discovered i think the first recognised over in a norfolk eel whose innards i bought in norwich fish market when in eighteen ninety one i was there exhibiting a whale the galston whale of pikes we yarned and robert had a story of a monster pike that he saw caught impaled on a fourteen tine dart which when struck shugged the shaft like a pig might robert paced the floor on the soles of his crotch boots to show the length of it it took exactly four and a half of his footprints it must have been forty pounds lubbock gives the greatest record at thirty-six pounds but ours came after lubbock and it was only a few years since dr day in british fishers maketh a cute remark about anglers figures r v is a gamekeeper saith day the size to which the pike attains in these islands is rather questionable rather a naive get-off was it not perhaps he had read the late colonel leith's marvellous stories of the fritton monsters which dorsal fin above water followed his candle-torch-lighted dinghy across the broad after a latish supper they may have been poor beagle sharks or baskers only the water wasn't salt j conway walters records one of one hundred pounds sent from whittlesea mere to buckland but as he does not refer to it i need not add to the story i have a norwich record for nineteen eighteen of a twenty seven and a half pounder forty two inches long with a girth around its waist of twenty three inches vincent assured me that many of the natives are ichthyophagus but his words were shorter was it not ancient orsonius a gourmet of the fourth century who thusly wrote the wary loose midst wreck and rushes hid the scourge and terror of the scaly brood unknown to friendship's hospitable board smokes midst the smoky taverns coarsest food surely an ignoble ending to a misspent life of gluttony but friend rudd makes out that Esox lucius is meat for the dinner of a king vincent told me he had caught smelts in kendall dyke what has always been strange to me is that although the smelt travels up to and would beyond norwich broadman talk of it as a rarity up here the lesser distance the st bennet's monks knew it well and a flounder had been hooked at kendall dyke also of pikish appetites we chattered i remembered how in the early eighties at peaceful below 
a £25 pike had struck a £4 eel, but the latter had pushed its tail through the gill covers and both had been strangled together. And in 1881, a pike at Horning caught two partridges in the river. Vincent talked of large eels coming into his net. Some had gone as high as seven pounds each. He opened his eyes, and so did the others, when I assured him I had seen and handled and measured three each of twenty-five pounds and over, and held records of one in 1867 taken in the ooze of thirty-six pounds and yet another at Yarmouth in 1808, a silver belly, of £42. But the latter was before my time. I wonder what an eel-babber would say to a tug from such monsters. These whoppers, I may say, are always barren females. Vincent was not aware of any local superstitions attached to eels. No, he'd not heard of eelskin garters worn against rheumatism. Granted that they were a solace, he could not give an opinion as to whether half a dozen coiled round a wooden leg would put fresh vigour and cheerfulness into it. What boys we were getting again! But we talked seriously at intervals, and I think I saw one eye wet a little, when I told him of the sadness, the pathos of child life, as I had seen it occasionally in Yarmouth. Folk may sneer at the feeling art, but it is nothing to be ashamed of. Talk, that did we, for several years arrears had to be gotten over, and we had very much in common. Evening came on apace, and the eel-nets must be set for the night's speculations, and it was time for the nightly vigils. Vincent put the light out, and I coiled in the rugs opposite. Our visitors had departed. To sleep. Who could? Not I, not he. We jabbered on in the moonlight and the dark. We talked thoughtfully. We laughed till the coots outside must have wondered, and when Vincent got coughing and half-choking, I said, Good night, in earnest. Seven times, said he next morning, you said good night, and I threw the same remark back at him. A yacht went by in a muddle. They could not lift the centreboard. Vincent dropped the nets. Another late bird followed. Vincent had his say to him. Some folks imagine that when they have quantered over the floats of the net, all square. But no, the pods and bosom lie beyond them. What'll you spring for the catch in the morning? Ninepence, said I, and fell asleep at last on my bargain. A cheerful one for either of us. Did I sleep, or was I but dreaming, when there came to me a passage from Ernest Suffling in his generally excellent 
land of the broads which no good yachtsman has failed to read he knew broadland better than he knew its wags one has to watch a leg to see it gets no pulling i do keenly writes he it is a curious sight to see the tiny eels swimming into their mother's mouth when alarmed i should think it is and they do well to know their own individual mater the vipers in two senses are not in it i was awake before sun-up we lay chatting a while and the door of heaven was opened i have viewed many sunrises but never in all my life one like this the doorway made a frame to it yonder the moon was paling before the dawning at five thirty pinks pearls greys and purples lit the skies and tinted the cloudlets that reached from our lock level to the heavens these with many shades between glowed and glistened moment by moment whilst the dark greens lightened little by little in the middle distance and as the dark greys in the background gave way to lighter a windmill appeared in the picture the waters freckling in a tender zephyr caught the inspiration and a tuft of bright emerald reeds on either side the door lintels in the nearer foreground gave an outstanding beauty too delightful for bald wording i never saw a japanese screen that compared to it i tried to find expression and when the red forehead of the sun crept up above the sea i could but turn to vincent who was enjoying it with me and no doubt he had seen many such who agreed with me that it was the very threshold of heaven why artists need to go further afield for inspiration surprises me here it is at our doors i have admired turner with his incomparably daring skies and atmospheres but i never saw the equal of this nature panel in any of them were i an artist i would haunt this old or rather new eel hut all summer through but i fear me i could never see a day dawning better if one even equal to it the poverty of my description shames me yet i in my audacity wanted a passing mallard or heron and a frolicking dabchick below on the water to put life into it i wanted far too much a previous offer to my own ninepence was half a crown and on the pulling up of the pods there was not six pennyworth of eels the eels don't like moonlight nights at least the eelmen don't for they won't work then i mean the fish stepping into his little shallow scow to-day composed of three parts tar and one of wood with his eel-tub and me we were quanted to the eighth of an inch what pole-punters these men are 
necessary to upcatch the wooden boy on the cod end. Vincent winked. I winked ditto, perhaps twice. The last night's catch was a small half dozen, said he, and up came the netted rings. In luck's way, John know little, for there were quite twenty-one pounds of scrigglers, all nice sizable fish for stewing or frying. A good nine penneth, said I, and lo, the next pod doubled the catch. There must be thundery weather on the way. It might have been ten or a dozen stone or more, or none, for it is all a lottery. Vincent told me a few secrets of the trade, which I honourably keep. We then quanted to shore, when I picked out a couple of pound of eels for my dinner, throwing them, he and I, hard upon a board, effectually stunning them. These I skinned at once, salted and peppered, and laid aside for the benefit of Lloyd George and my own. But this quanting, it is a gift to begin with, improved upon by practice. You'll see these broadlanders pushing home to meals or to work, gliding along as picturesquely as Venetian gondoliers, and never a fluke, never a needless swerving, and later in the day note them poling great hay water wagons like floating haystacks. A gentleman, Vincent told me, tried this quanting. He made a fair mull of it, turning round in a sort of circle like a beetle on a pin, until the quant broke in two, and he could not fetch the shore until holpen, that is, helped. My share of the catch included a gorgeously golden rud, two cigarette-sized jacks, pretty as zebras, and a small ruff, which Vincent and the broad folk erroneously called the miller's thumb. It was now time for me to put the saddle on Yarwhelp, and make for Hickling Broad and Horsey. Vincent had call for his labours elsewhere, and so we parted like true and tried brothers. Chapter 16 a Broadland Bird Haunt Some young birds came along, flying a yard or two at a time and lighting. Jim said it was a sign it was going to rain. Pretty soon it darkened up and began to thunder and lighten, for the birds were right about it. It would get so dark that it looked all blue-black. Tch! It was as bright as glory, and as dark as sin again in a second. From Huckleberry Finn Saturday morning's virgin dawning toned down as the day progressed, like sweet maidenhood towards maturer duties. There was promise of rain, like the looming up of cares after the honeymoon. Rain had been prayed for so why resent this clouding up? I hailed it with delight. 
I could do with a cooler atmosphere, being acclimatised to the robuster breezes of the seashore and Braden. Little by little the signs thickened, and it behoved me to show a leg above the hatchway. The breeze, too, was freshening, and all hands were required on deck. You see, I am a great lover of Clark Russell's sea phrases, and his pitchers of sweet salt waters. But to my log. Having locked up Vincent's hut and put the key where careful housewives hide them, I embarked again at 8.15, putting Yarwelp's sharp nose in the right direction. In a very short time, we had winged our way through the bottleneck, and the big expanse of open water lay spread before us. At once, the removal of the long line of stakes that once marked the channel assures us that war had even shown its ugly effects at peaceful hickling. Not a stump remains, although two mooring tubs wallow as the wind sweeps around them like two dead tied-up porpoises. Two wherrymen were making bad progress, sail up still, against a fresh of wind trying for the sounds. I hailed them and pitied the navigators for the loss of the guiding posts. One hailed back, I thought rather sourly. They was all right, they knowed the ropes. Perhaps they did, but the wherry seemed to know the shoals and was obdurate. Of course, to an obstinate, determined fellow, a sympathetic note provokes a dislike to acknowledge his muddle. Trust a wherryman to stick fast long if a strong quant, a sturdy shoulder, and a pliant tongue are his. Never mind em, Yarwhelp, you've got no keel, and draw almost as few inches as yon wherry draws feet. Law, how she filled her wing at this, until her very pinions strained in her impatience. It was a pretty scamper athwart that rippling surface. No matter whether it was right incline or left incline, she answered like a smart soldier. Left incline, she did it, and in a trice brought us to the island, whereon Miss E. L. Turner's tents are pitched. Ship ahoy! I was full early, but in a few moments the great little bird-woman gave the little bird-man a naturalist greeting. It must be rather tedious, mustn't it, to be so long isolated and so constantly awatch upon bitten, rough, harrier, bearded tit, and so forth, and so patiently to snap them in their homes and haunts. But the fame of those beautiful photo-reproductions has gone over the face of the waters and around the world of nature-lovers. I had a rather quick good-bye, and was off for Host Turner's Corner, the Pleasure Boat Inn. 
but how altered, desecrated and spoilt by the exigencies of wartime. The air folks who had drawn the posts for the water plane's benefit had also concreted the stave. What sacrilege! Reed and sedge and rush had been swamped by a quayside. The pathway upon it was coarse flinty stones that wrung the ankles to walk upon. If hickling shall be restored to the public, some public spirit must be extended towards this once noble and always characteristic corner of Broadland. The quayside might remain if the path upon it be tempered. I've been there when joyous parties of yachting folk lay in a pretty harbourage, their crews sitting in the parlour and the tea-room, enjoying a pleasant meal ashore. They seem now half afraid, for the loss of the guiding stakes. At a pinch, why, in summer, could not the water be buoyed, as obtains now at the Braden Knoll? I had thought of Folkard's rather decent doggerel, as I came up with bellying sail. The breeze fills my sails, the morning is grand, my ensign's unfurled, I've the helm in my hand. What sport is more pure, what pleasure more sweet, than the sail and the breeze, when kindly they meet? That sublime verse did not fit my return voyage across the broad. No, Jim tugged me over it. Had the old stakes been standing, and an osprey or fishhawk been seen erect upon one, either watching for a big roach or perch, or tearing it into fragments for his breakfast, I might have thought of sweeter poetry. Had an old sheeny black cormorant or two, or even its brownie youngsters been there and dotted about, it would have been equally inspiring. I've seen them all aforetime. Jim pointed out historic bird corners and talked birds, albeit a cold briar clung between his lips, of lessening peewits, of spring immigrants, of godwits bar-tailed, of godwits black-tailed. Yarwhelps, I interjected, and wondered why my little boat didn't start caracoling or pirouetting, of bitterns and answers, all of whom were Jim's next-door neighbours, of Norfolk-bred ruffs. Stop, Jim. What do you think of this recipe, which I snatched out of an aged cookery book? To dress ruffs and reefs, or reeves. They are Lincolnshire birds, and you may fatten them as you do chickens, with white bread, milk and sugar. They feed fast, and will die in their fat if not killed in time. Truss them cross-legged as you do a snipe. Spit them the same way, but you must gut them, and you must have good gravy in the dish, thickened with butter and toast under them. Serve them up quick. As leaf, Jim, 
would i pluck and truss up a cherub and pick its bones afterwards bah on that small patch of mud said jim i saw when with sir e gray three temink stints i wished i had been with them well jim towed me off the broad and left me hard by the elder vincent's hut good-bye friendly jim i found the key and at twelve-thirty prepared for dinner out went lloyd george out went saucepan plate knife well all the needfuls from the locker and stern cupboard out went my duster full of eels and some onions and potatoes in five minutes well condimented lloyd george was making that eel stew gallop as i ate the last section or two of anguilla vulgaris there fell raindrops so i scuttled the crocks together and thanked heaven for the promise of a thunderstorm i wanted a ripper i was going to paint you a word picture of that crude backwoodman's dinner-table but local colour under lightning claimed my notice as i sipped a cup of tea rather eely tasted the thunder began to roll huck's tubs about i was in the hut doorway whence the lightning rumble whence the thunderclaps stronger and stronger i wish it had been night to make it more picturesque but i was glad of it anyhow for one of my great hopes had come to pass at nearly the end of the trip after all heavy rain came down making the iron roof rattle again it pattered down in millions of big drops that made the waters dance and throw up myriad diamonds real koinors and cullinans but far more beautiful my father used to call these effects the scotchman's dance the waters freckled under them bumble umble rumble again flip flicker went the lightning in two-pronged three-pronged forks over the marshes yonder but it wasn't up to the standard that i wanted and then it broke leaving the earth little the cooler for all the riot but still it was an improvement on the thunder i used to make when a lad in a panorama show when i shook a sheet of tin and cranked peas in a tin cylinder to fill up the storm at sea what haven't i done as the storm cleared a beautiful male montague's harrier went aeroplaning by i got my glasses on him and revelled in the vision jim tells me they have done well a nesting as have bitterns and some others thanks to protection given them by some kindly gentleman saw my first wasp to-day i wanted more to study a certain point in their economy but have been disappointed now for a spin up old meadow dyke to horsey it was not a spin 
it was a deliberate crawl in the stewing heat shall i ever get there something said no but my will said yes i spare you the sweat and the heat of it i got in and panted a bit under the lee of some tall reeds as usual there were the adult black-backed gulls upon it or sailing beautifully around there was the same horde of coots trailing their feet above their fretted pathway in the waters it is a beautiful cool lake and a bit out of the way of ordinary trippers the only sound that came to me was the wetting of the scythes of the marshmen let's get back to the sounds and to the river hark someone or something is crying hock hock surely not an escaping hun where is my knuckle duster why wasn't it hurrah but i was delighted it was the autumn cry of a bittern hidden there in the reed patch it was worth all the sweating to get within hearing of it i have reached the thern again and am on my last lap for home end of section eight